you think back to your days in a U.S. history class, you may remember the following words. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. In that one long single sentence known as the preamble, our founding fathers sought to provide a summary of the articles to follow and they hoped to give a word picture of the the culture or character of this new nation. In much the same way, As one commentator put it, the Beatitudes serve as a sort of preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful teaching that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These Beatitudes give a succinct statement of the fundamental character, the way of life, if you will, of all of those who comprise the kingdom of God. And and Jesus begins this preamble with the verse before us today. One single verse. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven, And before we get into why this was chosen as a Palm Sunday text, I want us to make sure we understand the meaning of those basic words before us. As you know, each beatitude begins with the same word, blessed, or happy as some translations have it, but blessed is a much better translation. The Greek word behind that is the word makarios, which was a word that that the Greeks used to describe the gods. It's this divine and and godlike bliss and joy in which they lived. We can't really relate to pagan gods, but we maybe can relate to some of the Greek isles. I think a better illustration of, of the meaning of that word is how the Greeks used to call the island of Cyprus that same word. And they gave Cyprus this name because they believed it was so lovely, so rich, so fertile an island that a man would never need to go anywhere else to have a fulfilled life. It had such a climate, flowers, fruit trees so many minerals and natural resources that it contained within itself all that was needed for perfect bliss. As one commentator put it, Makarios then describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is totally independent of all the circumstances and changes of life. Now, you know, Jesus, He talks about that kind of joy. He talks about it in John 16. 
how in the midst of preparing His disciples for His own death and departure, you may remember He told them, Now I know that you have great sorrow now because of all of these things I'm telling you about how I'm going to suffer and die. But He said, I will see you again, meaning after the resurrection, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The Beatitudes in this word blessed speak to that kind of life, that kind of bliss which sorrow and loss and grief are powerless to touch. In fact, that joy which nothing in life or death can take away. And please don't misunderstand this blessedness, this joy is not some hopeful glimpse of the future. We're not just talking about some future glory like Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says this slight momentary affliction, meaning the sufferings we go through in this world, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is not our context here, nor is it the grammar. This is in present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not shall be, but is right now, this very moment. And what we need to notice is that Jesus didn't say what the people listening that day would have expected Him to say. When He started out this preamble with the word blessed, I'm sure they didn't think that the next words would be poor in spirit. In fact, I can just see some in the crowd that day saying, surely He didn't say what I thought He just said. He couldn't have said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And they would have had that reaction because what Jesus was saying to them made no logical sense. It's interesting that in the Greek language there are two words for poor. And one is it sort of has the idea behind it of what we would call a day laborer. Someone who has some things. He has the clothes on his back. He has the strength in his hands. He has a job each and every day where he can earn enough money to at least eat and live. That's not the word poor that Jesus uses here. Rather, he uses the word that means absolute and abject poverty, one who is totally destitute. And lest we think it's all about possessions or a lack thereof, Jesus qualifies His statement. He doesn't just simply say, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is to say, those who are spiritually and emotionally oppressed, disillusioned, or otherwise in need of God's help. This is the type of person who knows they have no resources whatsoever, either material or spiritual, to help themselves before God. And the reason this is important to you and me is because Jesus, we see Him helping this type of person this person who's poor in spirit, over and over again in the Gospels. Think about the Roman centurion we're introduced to in Matthew 8. He tells Jesus his servant is paralyzed and at home and in great pain, and Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. 
But the centurion says, no, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You say the word and he'll be healed. And we're told there that Jesus marvels at the man's faith. And we see great faith expressed, faith in Jesus' ability to heal from a distance. But we see something else. We see one who is poor in spirit. We see one who says, I'm not worthy. I have nothing whatsoever to offer you. Sounds sort of like Peter, doesn't it? You know, early in Jesus' public ministry, he's been using their boat as his pulpit. And then he says to Peter, put out into the water and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter says, well now, you know, we, uh, we worked all night long and didn't catch anything. But at your command, I'll let down the nets. And they begin to bring in such a school of fish that the, the boats literally begin to sink. And that's when Peter, the first words out of his mouth are, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That sounds like someone who's poor in spirit to me. If you want another example, think of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. She was a Greek, a, a pagan, and she begged Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And Jesus tells her in not so nice a way that he's really come to, at this point in time, be only with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But instead of being offended by his word, she answered, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said, Because of those words, your, your daughter is healed. These poor in spirit are neither poor in courage nor necessarily poor in a religious sense always, but rather because of a history of distress, sometimes both physically and spiritually, they find that they can have confidence only in God. They have no hope anywhere else. It's people with this attitude, this, this humility of spirit and this great trust in God. It's these who are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And keep in mind, that's what Jesus came preaching. He came preaching a message of repentance. Why? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you may be sitting there thinking, but I don't ever remember seeing that phrase in the Old Testament. I mean, here Jesus is supposed to be fulfilling the Old Testament, but I don't see that anywhere, the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament we may not see the actual phrase, but we see the roots of the kingdom in the Old Testament. The idea that God rules, that He is king or ruler, is one of Israel's basic affirmations. We see it over and over again. Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 33, Judges 8, Isaiah 41. It's in the, the Psalms time and time again. And in other places as well. And according to the Old Testament, the rule of God is eternal. It's everlasting and it encompasses 
all of creation. And because of this, that means it's also directed to people like you and me. It's directed to humanity, His rule. It's directed to the nation of Israel. Through the prophets, we find out it's even directed to the nations. And the result is that it's not looked upon as being impersonal or local in nature, but as being personal, dynamic, and universal. And most importantly, this kingdom is at hand in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we tie in everything that we've just learned in the last seven or eight minutes with the fact that this is Palm Sunday? a day when we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, just like Tom described to the children as he begins his last week on this earth, what we call his week of passion. In Matthew 21, we read of this special day and we see that Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead to the next village to find a donkey there with her coat with her And Jesus said, untie them and bring them to me. And Matthew tells us in his gospel that this very thing took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. That see your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. Now I know that's a familiar verse. Think about it again. Look at what's being said. Your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. Matthew is making sure that we understand that prophecy is being fulfilled, that's for sure, but he's also doing something else. He's making sure that we see the attitude of Jesus as he comes in to God's city. He's humble. We see the responsibility of rule in the same sentence with the attitude of humility. Your king comes to you. Well, how's he coming? He's coming in humility. Riding on the most humble of animals. Some translations would give the word gentle there. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and that brings to mind what Jesus teaches in Matthew 11, where he says, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a, a symbol of authority, it's his rule in their lives. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest. For your souls. This this attitude, this poorness in spirit is why Paul can talk about Jesus the way he does in Philippians 2 in that so-called Christ hymn. Think of the descriptive words he uses there when he's talking about Jesus, how he emptied himself, how he takes on the form of a servant, how he humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death. You know, there's a reason Paul is talking about Jesus like that. One reason is he's lifting up Jesus for praise. 
But there's another reason within the context of the letter of Philippians why Paul is saying that. It goes back to this theme of humility. That's what Paul's telling the Philippian Christians. He says all of this about Jesus because he wants them to be humble. He wants them to be poor in spirit. He begins that chapter 2 by saying, Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to say all of those wonderful things about Jesus Christ. My whole point with all of this is that we, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the prophesied king. And how does he come? Does he ride in on a war horse? Symbolic of all of his power and glory and majesty and might? No, he comes humbly riding on a donkey. Jesus himself is the prime example of one who is poor in spirit because he's trusting in God completely as he goes into Jerusalem knowing that nothing but denial and betrayal and agony and pain and suffering and death await him. Peter puts it this way in his first letter when he was reviled, talking about Jesus. He did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted him who judges justly. And you see, that's where we have to sort of apply this passage, this verse of Scripture. What does that say about our own lives? How do we truly live? How often, if ever, do we count others better than ourselves? Jesus was humble and put all his trust in the Lord. That's what the poor in spirit do. That's how they act. And that's how they live each day. And as Scripture makes clear, that sets into motion the exaltation principle, a principle that you and I have talked about in here before in a sermon... And that principle that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's why in Philippians 2, Paul says of Jesus that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Is Paul finished there? No. He keeps on going. He says, therefore. You see, there's a cause and effect. Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? That Jesus is Savior? No that Jesus is Lord. That is to say that Jesus is ruler, that He's king, that He's master over everything to the glory of God the Father. You know, that's what the crowd did that day in Jerusalem. They exalted Him. 
they realized he was the king, or at least that's what they were calling him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were screaming from the street side as Jesus went by on that donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. At least they were right in the first part of the week. But it didn't stay that way, did it? Which way will we live? Let's pray together. Dear Father,